have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. With me, Katie Haler. And me, Adam Murphy. And this week, we are pondering periods. With about 800 million people menstruating each day around the globe, we're revisiting the biology, musing over menstruation and mental well-being, and asking why, in 2020, period poverty is such a problem. This show contains personal descriptions of medical conditions that some listeners might find difficult to hear. Plus, in the news... Lockdown or let rip? Are our efforts to try to stop the spread of coronavirus taking us in the wrong direction? An update on the new England and Wales NHS COVID app? And with England's ban on some single-use plastics now in force, why do we have so much single-use plastic around in the first place? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Among the COVID news this week, US President Donald Trump has announced that he and the First Lady are now self-isolating with the virus. And Scottish National Party MP Margaret Ferrier has been suspended from the party after travelling to Westminster despite experiencing COVID symptoms. But one of the most frequently asked questions across the media this week was, will we see another lockdown? The government has described this as their nuclear option of last resort. Nevertheless, some are eager that we do go down that route to halt the spread of the coronavirus infection until we have a vaccine. The present strategy, though, is one of stricter local restrictions where there are hotspots and general control measures across the country. But increasingly, as stories have been published of students spending their freshers' weeks locked in their halls, the possible cancellation of Christmas and the devastating impact on the arts, other voices are saying that we're already going too far and that the present approach to try and suppress the virus is the wrong one. They're arguing that it's not going away. The prospect of a vaccine is too distant and uncertain, and instead, we need to learn to live with it. My name is Raj Bhopal. I'm Emeritus Professor of Public Health in the Usher Institute, the University of Edinburgh. We've been hit by a very big pandemic that we've managed to control reasonably well, considering the formidable challenges. We were slow to start. But once started, we have managed to control things. But we have a very long way ahead and we cannot continue with the strict lockdowns and strict restrictions that we've seen over the last six months. We will have to change direction. Why do you say that? Because if one looks at the numbers, you could say, well, look, the lockdowns in every country that's implemented one have been incredibly successful. They brought the virus count from what would have been hundreds of thousands of cases a day, to near zero? I think it's absolutely amazing what's been achieved. But the cost has been very high. The financial costs, the restrictions on freedoms, the damage, not just to the economy, but to health services, care services, very important sectors of our lives, theatre, cinema, sport, have been seriously damaged. We cannot live with it much longer. The public is voting with its feet. So we've done well, but we need to change direction. We can't keep on going in this direction forever. And what direction are you advocating that we should consider pursuing instead? Like everyone else, I'm desperate for a vaccine. If we get a vaccine, I will be in the queue. 
vaccines are not there to be discovered. They have to be invented. That takes a lot of work. Three vaccines I've examined that have been published in The Lancet. The side effects are very common symptoms that mimic COVID-19. Then we still don't know about the long-term safety in terms of serious problems, and we don't know the effectiveness. By the time we understand all this, it's going to be a long time. Yes, we may well get vaccines that we can begin to use in spring, but their long-term effectiveness, long-term safety will not be clear for a very long time. If we get a vaccine, it will be a game changer, but the game will change over a period of about two or three years. So what is the alternative? We learn to live with the virus whereby we decide that we're going to minimise the damage while we keep our societies as open and functioning as possible. We have to remember that the single most important determinant of health is income and wealth. If we don't have income and wealth, our health will very quickly be damaged and our health services will crumble. So it's not a case of health or wealth. It's a case of balancing these two things. So the alternative is that we change strategy. Clamping down on whole populations is not really working and it's not necessary. The one bit of good news I can bring is that this disease under 18 is much less severe than flu. After 25, it becomes a bit more severe than flu, but it's over 70 when the problems really start. But even in people over 80, 90% or more will survive. It's not a death sentence as some people think. So what would you advocate then? Are you advocating for almost where it feels like the UK government were sort of heading originally before they then went down the full lockdown route, which was a sort of managed population immunity approach where there's a slow trickle of the virus seeping through society and leaving in its wake immunity. And that translates into a way of controlling the virus for the many in the long term. But it's much less painful economically, psychologically and educationally than locking down a country putting everyone on hold until we have a vaccine, which might never materialise, let's face it. That's exactly what I'm advocating, but I'm not advocating it in a let the virus rip or pay no attention to some people. Let's start with young people. They need to socialise, they need education, and they need freedom. They need to develop themselves. It's a huge need. And they are hardly harmed by this COVID-19. So we must let them get on with their lives. If some of them don't want to take the risk of getting infection, we would have to respect that. But in their day-to-day lives, as we're already seeing, it's a high likelihood they're going to get it even before a vaccine is available. Currently, people are not talking about that. We must start talking about that. But Raj, on the one hand, I can see what you're saying, but how do you propose to protect the people who are vulnerable? so that we can allow this seepage of virus through the younger age groups who are at lower risk without taking risks for the older people? Because that's, at the end of the day, why the government have implemented, they say, the present stringent measures. Nothing in our society or any society is a blanket policy for everyone. Every policy is tailored 
We don't give breast cancer screening to men. We don't give influenza vaccine to everyone. Everything is tailored according to need. And we have more than 12,000 deaths every week in the UK. They occur from diseases that are sometimes a lot easier to prevent and treat than COVID-19, but we live with them. Some level of death and disability is going to have to be accepted, otherwise we'll destroy our society. Why do you think then, Raj, that the approach that's being taken is being taken? Well, I think there is a great deal of guilt. We were slow to start. We didn't do a good job in the care homes. But also, at the moment, there isn't a proper, honest dialogue. There's no one brave enough to tell the truth. We have produced data on 137 million children in nine countries, and and we can see what is really happening. The policy has been to petrify in the hope that people will be so scared they will follow all guidelines. We didn't use punishments to handle the AIDS pandemic, which is still with us, 32 million deaths, over 600,000 deaths last year across the world. We've had to learn to live with these things. Raj Bobal speaking there to Chris Smith. And it's important to remember that in this area, there's still a lot to learn. For example, we're not yet sure that you're reliably immune to the coronavirus if you've already had it. The England and Wales NHS Test and Trace app has been finally released. This public health tool designed to assist with coronavirus contact tracing has been much touted by politicians, but suffered from a number of issues during the launch, including problems with QR code scanning at venues and no way to register a positive COVID test if you got tested at a hospital. The app was originally very similar to Australia's version called COVID Safe, but switched during development to a different model created by Apple and Google. And so it's useful to compare the two to see what works and what doesn't. COVID-safe launched in Australia back in April and Phil Sansom asked cryptographer Vanessa Teague how successful has it been? We're not quite sure. And that's part of the trouble. The federal government, for some reason, refuses to cough up any data at all. We don't know how many people are actually using it and we don't know how, what fraction of contacts that it is successfully detecting. They must have that information, right, because the app interacts actively with an Amazon server at least once a day. So they could easily be telling us, but they've chosen not to. Right. So I'm guessing we're not saying that no news is good news here. Indeed. One assumes that if 99% of people who had downloaded were still using it, they would probably find it in their hearts to share that information (laughs) with us. Now, can you just explain how different is it to this NHS app that's just been released? Right. It's actually very, very similar to the earlier British app. COVIDSafe runs a centralised protocol. In other words, the Bluetooth messages that you're sending around are encrypted versions of your ID. And when you test positive, you upload to the authorities a list of the encrypted IDs of all the people you've come close to, and they decrypt the ID and notify the person. The information flow is exactly the opposite way around from the decentralised Apple-Google framework, which Britain and most other countries are now using. In the decentralised exposure notification framework, you're doing on your own phone a computation that tells you whether or not you've come into contact with anybody who has just tested positive for the infection. There's never a need for a centralised authority to learn who's been in contact with whom. It's been quite a crucial question, hasn't it? Because the NHS app 
switched from the centralized to the decentralized. Why is that? One of the reasons was that the centralized version just kind of didn't work very well and COVID safe didn't work very well either. Uh, you know, it drained the battery. It wasn't as effective as people hoped. It crashed, etc. Realistically, that's probably why the NHS app switched over. But I think there's a huge advantage to the decentralized version in that it doesn't build up in a centralized database a list of which infected person has been near whom. Now, the epidemiologists would say you also don't get the advantages of scientific analysis of a great big centralised database of who's been near whom, when and who got infected, how. But I'm concerned, at least in the Australian case, about the possibility that that highly sensitive database might potentially be misused or potentially might just be leaked. What about this other factor that Apple and Google protected this technology that the apps rely on, which is using Bluetooth at really low power. Right. So long, long before COVID, advertising companies, specifically Google, but plenty of others as well, realised that you could get a very, very accurate picture of where somebody was if they were willing to turn on Bluetooth low energy on their phone and scan for Bluetooth beacons that you could carefully put at special locations in shopping malls or train stations or something. And so Apple in particular controlled access to these functions as a privacy feature. Then when COVID came along, somebody had the brilliant idea of using Bluetooth-based tracking for connection recording. Then Apple and Google had to think of something to do about it. So they responded to this situation by creating this very specific decentralised protocol rather than just a clearing open slather. Right. So what you're saying then is that Australia have essentially stuck to their guns and they're struggling to get around these privacy restrictions on phones that don't let you use low power Bluetooth easily. Yeah, that's exactly right. The only slight additional complexity there is the Australian app initially had a lot of bugs that interfered with the basic workings of the thing. And they blamed Apple for a lot of them, which in fact were just coding bugs in their app. Okay, taking it all together then, who do you think's made the right decision? Oh, I definitely think Britain has made the right decision. In Australia, we never really had the opportunity to have a real discussion and democratic decision about it. We still have never really got a clear answer on whether the Commonwealth authorities have access to the data or whether it's only the state authorities, which is actually a big deal in Australia for various reasons. The fact that it was fairly openly and democratically done in the UK led directly to a good decision to switch. Vanessa Teague there is at the Australian National University. And if you'd like to download the app, you can search on your app store for NHS COVID-19. Hello, I'm Chris Barrow, bringing you a brand new podcast called Naked Gaming. This is where we look at gaming news. The initial conversation was, oh, could we harvest energy from button presses? Reviews. If you're into games where there's action around every corner and where something's always happening, then maybe this isn't one for you. And we also go back in time with Retro Revival. Oh, thanks. (laughs) You do. I only just picked up the controller for like literally a minute. Yeah, but you sucked though. Naked Gaming. Download it now wherever you get your podcasts. And still to come, from pads to pills and poverty, we're talking periods. 
But first, on Thursday the 1st of October, the government announced that plastic straws, stirrers and plastic stemmed cotton buds are now banned in England. This is welcome news for many with concerns over single-use plastic and its wide-ranging environmental impacts, with England using an estimated 4.7 billion plastic straws, about 320 million plastic stirrers and 1.8 billion plastic stem cotton buds each year. So how much of a difference will this ban make? And how can science help our society to use plastic more sustainably in general? Taylor Eckert is a plastics expert and member of the Surplus Research Group at Cambridge University. And she's with us now. So, Taylor, how impactful is this ban likely to be? So it's definitely a great first step. Uh, The thing about a lot of these plastics is, A, they can't be recycled because they're too small. So they fall through the sorting equipment. And often it's just not economically viable to recycle them. And B, when they do leak into the environment, they can cause a huge amount of problems for wildlife in the oceans. Because they're so small, they break down easily, they're brightly colored, they look like food, and so a lot of creatures will end up eating them and that causes problems later. So it's a really good first step in terms of getting us to think about what single-use plastics are necessary and which ones aren't and how we can cut them out of our lives. But it's still just a first step. Overall, these straws and stirs probably account for less than 0.1% of marine plastic pollution. So there's still a long way to go in terms of addressing this huge issue. But what about for people who kind of can't drink without a plastic straw? Are there any accommodations being made for those people? Yes, definitely. So people with disabilities or other medical reasons for needing a plastic straw to drink, they will still be able to access these uh, materials. So how come now in 2020, with everything that's going on, why is so much plastic not getting reused or recycled? So there's a few reasons behind that. One is that we just have a huge diversity of plastics. So when you look at all of the things in your recycling bin, you might actually see that they all have different labels. Um, and each of those different types of plastic has to be recycled separately. And this is not always straightforward in terms of separating them out and then recycling them. So that's the first issue. And the second issue is just that single-use plastics are still just really convenient, especially now with coronavirus. They're essential in many cases. And so replacing them with a more sustainable reuse or refill model uh, does take commitment, and it's something we haven't quite managed to do yet. Your group were exploring a few different avenues. What particular solution have you been working on? So what I work on is a sunlight-driven method for turning plastic waste into hydrogen fuel. The cool thing about this is it's really simple. You only need four components, so plastic, water, sunlight, and a photocatalyst, which is just a material that uses the energy and sunlight to make a chemical reaction happen faster. So you combine all of these different ingredients, and the photocatalyst ends up breaking down your plastic and water and releasing hydrogen, which we could potentially use as a green fuel. What's the kind of yield, or how, how long does it take to do? So it's still a very slow process. We're at the beginning of this research. Um, probably takes about a month to break down half of the plastic, uh, but it's something we're really working on and trying to push that further. And are you hopeful that you'll be able to to scale it up in terms of time efficiency and and how much you get out of it? 
Yes, definitely. We've done some initial experiments going from these small pieces of plastic, like two centimeters up to um, something 50 times larger. And we're hoping to go further and kind of build a a rooftop demonstrator uh, to show this is feasible on a larger scale. Sounds very exciting. We might need to come back to you at a later date and, and talk to you again. Taylor, thank you very much. And now it's time for the mailbox, where we look into the things you've been sending us. And this week, we've had a question from Razel in the Philippines. And they're asking about some news about the white sand controversy in Manila Bay, where an artificial beach project using dolomite rocks has been criticised for being an environmental hazard. He asks, what is the science around dolomite sand and does it have health-related risks? Well, our very own Phil Sansom has been looking into this and he explained that dolomite is a naturally occurring type of rock that's very closely related to limestone. It's a sort of calcium-magnesium carbonate. In this case, it's coming from a large dolomite quarry on a southern Philippine island and since August has been travelling on ships in crushed-up form to Manila. This is part of a rehabilitation programme to clean up the notoriously polluted bay, or at least to clean up its image. But the Philippines Department of Health warned of respiratory risks if you inhale aerosolized dolomite dust. And as board chemist pointed out on the forum, people and the waves will probably crush the rocks down to dust over time. Others warn of damage to the bay ecosystem from heavy metals leaching into the water. There is limited evidence around dolomite dust's health or environmental risks in particular, but perhaps this is a relevant point and worth exploring before continuing the project. We'll be following the story and hoping for some more concrete research soon. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories we've covered this week, you can find them with their transcripts and references at nakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. It's October, and now that kids are back at school here in the UK, perhaps it's time to consider some conversations other than COVID that might be taking place in corridors, classrooms and bathrooms. This year in England, the government announced it was making period products freely available for schools to order in for kids that need them. And according to period.org, the 10th of October marks National Period Day in the US. So this week we are pondering periods. How does the menstrual cycle work and change throughout life? When should you seek help if you're worried about your periods? And how can we improve access to not just period products, but period education too? Stay tuned to find out. First though, what actually is a period? Close to half the global population have them roughly each month. But how confident are you of the basics? Consultant gynaecologist Caroline Overton is with us to get us all up to speed. But first, here are Eva Higginbotham and Phil Sansom with a quick fire science. If you have ovaries and are between the ages of about 12 and about 50, chances are that roughly each month you'll experience a period, a bleed from the vagina. It's not dangerous or gross, it's biology. Periods are unique to the person having them, but on average they will last somewhere around five days each time. Say a typical menstrual cycle is 28 days long. Day one is the first bleeding day, and by day five or so the bleeding will have probably stopped. A few weeks later, day 14 or so, the brain will release chemical messengers, called hormones, into the bloodstream that tell the ovaries to release an egg into the adjoining fallopian tube. Then, the ovaries release hormones to thicken the lining of the uterus, sometimes called the womb, in case the released egg meets a sperm on its way down the fallopian tube and gets fertilised. 
the egg, fertilized or not, then moves into the now thickly lined uterus, and if it's not been fertilized, it breaks down. Ovarian hormone production drops, and the uterus lining also breaks down, and it's the broken down lining that comes out of your vagina for a few days that is your period. Phil Sansom and Eva Higginbotham there. Caroline, which hormones were Eva and Phil talking about there? Oestrogen and progesterone, produced by the ovaries and controlled by the pituitary gland. So those are the main hormones we're talking about when we're thinking about the cycle, is that right? Those are the main hormones. And when we talk about blood loss, and we'll we'll talk about pain in a little bit as well, is it possible to quantify how much bleeding we're talking about and how much pain people might experience? Is there a kind of a typical amount? So a typical amount of blood shouldn't make you anemic. You shouldn't be passing big clots. So you might pass tiny clots, but you shouldn't pass clots bigger than a 50p. And essentially, you should be able to carry out your work, school, normal activities without needing to stay at home. In terms of pain, you might need to take a household painkiller, such as paracetamol or ibuprofen, but it would be abnormal to regularly miss work, school or activities because of period pain. So we heard that around the ages of between about 12 and 50 is when people would tend to to menstruate. People who have ovaries are born with potentially millions of eggs in the ovaries. Is that right? So why do we actually stop menstruating? We don't know exactly why people stop menstruating. We know that there are still eggs present in the ovaries. So some sort of signal is that uh, for the periods to cease, exactly why we don't know. When that actually happens, it's called a menopause. So what actually goes on then during that in the body? Menopause just means end of periods. Actually, what happens, there are greater changes happening in what we call the perimenopause, the run-up to your period stopping. And there, your periods, which might have been regular and monthly, start to first of all get closer together, so they're coming round maybe twice in a month, and then they will tend to space out. You'll start to miss periods, and you might also start to get the symptoms of low oestrogen, of which hot flushes and night sweats are the classic ones. We associate periods with fertility, so what happens if that menopause happens much earlier than expected? So you're quite right that some women can have an early menopause before the age of 40, It is commoner in some families, so it's worth asking if your mother had an early menopause. Sometimes it's a result of surgical or hormonal or chemical treatments, for example, for cancer. What should women do if they run into these problems? I think the main thing is to be aware that your periods are a sort of marker of your hormonal well-being. You should have them roughly monthly. And if your periods have suddenly changed to stop, then there's something not quite right. Women shouldn't feel embarrassed to go along and talk to their GP and say that their periods have changed. How serious would it be or is it just something that just needs to be dealt with? It would all depend on the stage of life. Early menopause is going to be very serious if somebody is still planning to have a family. But mostly um, people with ovaries will have spacing out periods due to hormone imbalances like PCOS, which I think we're going to discuss later. And all of this is amenable to treatment. 
Brilliant. Thank you, Caroline. And we'll be hearing from Caroline later on in the show. Hannah Short, let's bring you in here. You're a GP and women's health specialist, and you also have an interest in menopause. One aspect of periods we haven't discussed so far is the impact that hormonal variation may have on how you might feel. So continuing with menopause for a moment, can your periods stopping impact how you feel? Yeah, they certainly can. I think there's two kind of main aspects. The emotional and kind of psychological impact of changing hormones in itself can have an effect because the changing levels affect your brain. And so it can lead to symptoms like mood swings and insomnia, anxiety, loss of confidence and irritability. But I think there's also the psychological side of it directly by the fact you've stopped your periods. Some women will mourn their loss of fertility or they see it as a sign of they've kind of they've now passed their youth. And obviously that's particularly problematic for women um, who or girls who've gone through a very early menopause or or lost their ovaries as a result of surgery. In general, how well do scientists understand the relationship between your mental well-being and your menstrual cycle? There's a general appreciation that there, there is a connection. But to be honest, I don't think it's understood well enough or not in the severity that can occur is not really fully understood or recognised. I mean, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists have guidelines for PMS, which is premenstrual syndrome. And that's where women will struggle with symptoms in the two weeks leading up to their period. There's a recognition that there's a kind of some degree of severity there. So some women will just be mild and pleasant symptoms and others will be really quite severe. Not everybody's aware of these guidelines. So I think the scientific and, and medical community needs to do a lot more kind of work around it. Um, but I think it is gaining recognition and understanding. Is there a sort of a correlation that we can appreciate between hormonal variation and moods specifically? There's no such thing as typical, I suppose, but often people will associate the first part of the menstrual period, so just the day that your period starts and for the first two weeks is oestrogen rising, their mood tends to improve, the energy tends to be better, libido is often increased around ovulation. But in the second part of the cycle, when the oestrogen's dropping and the progesterone's rising, a lot of women might feel a bit more irritable, may feel more tearful. Again, as I was saying, the severity of that you know, really varies. And about one in 20 women were struggle with very, very severe symptoms. Um, they say it's almost like a switch has been flipped and they're a different person in the second part. And that's when you have something called premenstrual dysphoric disorder or PMDD. And what would you do to advise people to seek help with how they're feeling and what kind of problems can arise for them? Well, I was just saying about the PMDD, for the 1 in 20 women or those who are born female who still have their ovaries, it can be really quite debilitating, the symptoms. So they can have suicidal thoughts. It's not just feeling a little bit low and very severe anxiety. If that's happening, that's obviously not normal and needs help and recognition. Um, Going to see your GP would be the first port of call and keeping a track of your symptoms to kind of show that there's a cyclical kind of nature and that you're not feeling like that all the time. There isn't like an underlying psychiatric diagnosis there. What can be done to help? Are there medications that would be appropriate? How do you help as a doctor? depends on the severity so women who are having kind of milder symptoms lifestyle changes like regular exercise sleep eating a fiber rich diet can help vitamin b6 and magnesium supplements there's some evidence for those with people with the more severe symptoms um, you know whether having to miss school or work or it's affecting their relationships um, then things like the ssri antidepressants can help um, stabilize the, the brain and you know reduce those mood side effects and things like the contraceptive pill uh, hrt can help as well 
Um, in some severe cases, having an induced medical menopause, so you have injections to say switch off the ovaries, um, can help. And you're given some HRT to kind of help protect your bones and things like that. And in very severe cases, some women have their ovaries removed, but that's at the very extreme end. The menstrual cycle and well-being isn't a subject that is talked about loads. As a woman's health doctor, how would you summarise the societal perception of menstruation and mood? I think it's probably still viewed as quite a taboo. I think because you've got two kind of taboos there anyway. Um, I mean, hopefully things are changing, but um, historically menstruation and mental health are things that people steer away from. So when you get that combination, I think there's quite a reluctance to talk about it. Unfairly, women have often been viewed as quite hysterical. That's probably where the, the word kind of comes from, hysteria and hysterectomy when you're talking about removal of the womb. I think things are getting better, but because it's not fully understood, I don't think women are often believed when people say that their menstruation is really affecting their mental well-being. And I'm hopeful that will change as the conversation opens up around it. There's the lack of acceptance really on the societal level um, that, that, you know, our moods do change. That's a normal part often of being female. I mean, obviously, if it's affecting your day to day life in a very difficult way, that's different. But I, th I think that there's definitely room for society to kind of em embrace the fact that women are generally cyclical creatures and you're not going to feel the same from one day to the next. And that's not how we've evolved to be. Hannah Short, thank you very much. Hannah's recommended a couple of websites for support and information around menstruation and mental health, as well as premature menopause. You can find these links on this episode's show page on our website, nakedscientist.com. Now, from mental health back to physical health. Not everyone has the average period described in the quickfire science earlier. Here's Sophia's experience, and just to warn you, it's pretty tough. Before experiencing endometriosis, I didn't know that such pain was possible. Every month I would find myself on the floor, fluttering in and out of consciousness, as an invisible hand seemingly worked to slice my lower abdomen apart with a series of blunt knives. I was so scared. The first doctor I saw told me, some people just have painful periods. Fortunately, I didn't listen. Endometriosis affects about 10% of people with ovaries worldwide, where cells like those that line the womb, the endometrium, grow where they shouldn't, like on the ovaries or fallopian tubes. These misplaced cells respond to the same cyclical hormonal cues as the endometrial cells in the womb, so with each menstrual cycle they grow and then shed. Only, because they are outside the womb, they can't leave the body through the vagina and instead can cause irritation and pain. And this, in turn, can lead to the growth of scar tissue and adhesions between organs. I am now post-op and things are much better. But there is no cure, only management. And I worry every day that a resurgence of that immobilising pain, those days of lonely desperation and fear await me just around the corner. That was Sophia there sharing her experience and you also heard from Eva Higginbotham. Caroline, is it common with endometriosis to experience that level of pain? Well, thank you for sharing Sophia's experiences. I'm very glad that she didn't take the doctor's advice that it was normal, very much wasn't. And that sort of severe pain where she is in agony is not normal and is classic of endometriosis. 
in Sophia's case, she had surgery, which helped. What are the treatment options short and long term with this condition? So the main aim of treatment now would be about picking it up as early as possible so that hopefully you can avoid the long-term complications such as adhesions and infertility. So the current guidelines are to actually make the diagnosis based on the symptoms. So if somebody like Sophia coming along and saying, I'm doubled up with my period, that should flag up that, that, that she might have endometriosis. There are painkillers. There are treatments like the hormonal pill. Basically, you want to make the periods either disappear completely or shorter and much lighter in order to control the endometriosis and the symptoms. Are there fertility implications here? There are fertility implications. Endometriosis starts as little pimples uh, in the pelvis, which are slightly sticky as they grow and develop and those can cause the organs to stick together which we call adhesions and the adhesions then can get in the way of the egg escaping from the ovary and or getting down the fallopian tube causing fertility in the longer term. What we don't know is why some women get severe adhesions and in other women it seems to have a much more benign course where it doesn't progress so much. What are the theories? There may be a sort of family link there, so an inherited problem. You are more likely to have endometriosis if a family member of yours has got endometriosis and it's more likely to be severe. We think it may be linked with the amount of period. Think of that period sort of um, slightly overwhelming the body's immune system that are clearing up the blood cells from inside the pelvis. The other one is that there's an immune modification that you've got a slightly altered immune response where in some ways those immune cells are not clearing up as well. Endometriosis can result in having to manage severely painful periods as we've heard and managing irregular ones throws up a different challenge and one potential reason for this could be a condition called PCOS or PCOS. Time for another quick fire science from Eva. Polycystic ovarian syndrome, sometimes called PCOS or PCOS, is a common syndrome whose cause isn't well understood. It's often characterised by its symptoms, which can include the growth of more follicles or egg sacs than is normal on the ovaries. These sacs aren't always able to release the egg inside, which can cause problems with ovulation, periods and fertility. People with PCOS can have irregular or no periods at all as a result, and also often have higher than normal testosterone levels, which can lead to symptoms like weight gain, acne and hair growth on the body in a more typically quote-unquote male pattern, sometimes with hair growth on the face, chest and back. So we've talked about the fertility outlook for people with endometriosis, but what about the fertility outlook for someone diagnosed with this, with PCOS? Somebody diagnosed with PCOS is likely to have irregular periods with long gaps between them, although some people with PCOS can have regular periods. If you're having long gaps between your periods, you're not ovulating as regularly and there might be a delay in getting pregnant. It's normal to have a period every 25 to 35 days. So if if you're getting gaps longer than that, there might be a problem and you might have PCOS. Now, the condition is also associated with high insulin levels. So why is that and what does it mean for someone's health throughout life? 
So those high insulin levels is part of the uh, changes in the body causing the hormone changes that lead to the effects that we heard about in the snippet there. You get increased production and activity of hormones like testosterone. That high insulin levels uh, and the leads to insulin resistance. So you actually, your cells, if you like, are numb to the effect of the insulin. And there's a diabetic tendency there. How can you manage a condition like this? Or what's the best way to go about it? It would be about making a diagnosis. It would be if you are overweight, trying to lose weight, eating a healthy, balanced diet. And if your periods are still very irregular, drugs such as metformin, which increase insulin sensitivity, and possibly if you're wanting to get pregnant, fertility drugs such as clomiphene. Caroline, thanks very much. Let's zoom out from the doctor's office now to take a broader societal perspective on menstruation and, quote, every month girls in the UK face period poverty. Two-fifths have had to use loo roll because they can't afford proper sanitary products. Now that is a rather damning quote and it comes from charity Plan International in reference to a recent report they conducted. And Global Campaigns Manager Emma Jackson joins us now. So Emma... What is the current picture of period poverty here in the UK and how does that compare with the global picture? The term period poverty refers to the inability to afford or access the products needed to manage your period. And this is an issue that's affecting millions of people all around the world and having a huge impact. It's especially acute in places of extreme poverty, as you might imagine, so places where there's little access to water and sanitation facilities. But like you say, it's also an issue here in the UK too, which people are often quite surprised about, given the fact that we're kind of in one of the richer countries in the world. We did a survey with girls in the UK and we found that many were suffering because they couldn't afford to access the products to manage their periods. So we found that one in 10 couldn't afford period products. And then 42%, so almost half, of girls were saying that they'd been forced to use makeshift items such as socks or toilet roll because they'd been struggling to afford proper products. And our research showed us that period poverty is quite a complex issue that goes beyond simply this affordability of period products. And it's actually made up of what we're calling a kind of toxic trio of three connected and reinforcing issues. So firstly, the high cost of period products. Secondly, a lack of education about what makes a healthy period. And then thirdly, the deep stigma that still surrounds periods all around the world. Given that we are in the middle of a global pandemic, what are the consequences for young people now with this? There's huge consequences always to this issue and then we've seen them kind of increase during this lockdown period. Period poverty has a huge and very real impact on girls' lives. So a key example of this is on education. We see that girls are embarrassed around kind of leaking or not having access to products or being bullied. And so they're missing out on school because of their periods. And this is happening all around the world. So we see that 70% of girls in Malawi, a country in southern Africa, are missing one to three school days per month due to menstruation, which is more than they miss due to malaria. So it is really significant. Uh, And period poverty is also putting girls' physical, sexual and mental health at risk, so damaging their self-image, their self-esteem. Because of this kind of period stigma and lack of education, that's meaning that they they don't access doctors in the same way and because they're embarrassed. And so it's 
causing late diagnosis of serious conditions such as the ones you've been talking about on the program so it's brilliant to kind of be opening up those issues but then in lockdown we've seen this compound particularly around the issue of access to products so we found that girls are struggling to afford and access the products that they need we know that families are facing tough financial choices all around the world right now and it's meaning that more women than ever are having difficulty accessing the products they need we surveyed girls and found that three in ten girls since lockdown began had been um, having issues affording the the period products that they need which is, is sad to hear I was talking to a colleague, Emma, earlier in the week about access to toilets as well, not just period products. How are charities like yours trying to support people at the moment? Yeah, so there's a whole range of different things that we are doing. So you spoke about toilets there. So kind of firstly, on the global side, we're doing things like constructing girl-friendly toilets in schools and communities and kind of access to water and and sanitation facilities and trying to support girls so that they no longer need to use unhygienic materials also when an emergency hits like natural disaster or also covid um, we're providing essential dignity kits which include period products because these are often kind of forgotten about in emergency response and then in the uk we're doing lots of different things to raise awareness around period poverty and break down the stigma it's an issue we've been working on since 2015 We did a big research report called Break the Barriers to get more people understanding this issue and getting people talking about it. And then we've done campaigning to the government to call for change around the education curriculum, around access to products. We even secured a kind of period emoji after girls told us that they felt that this would help them better communicate on this issue. So we're kind of trying to tackle it holistically across those three different areas that I discussed in that toxic trio, that access to products, the education and the stigma. You mentioned the stigma there. How how pervasive is that period stigma now in 2020? Unfortunately, it's still really pervasive. So it's been there for centuries, uh, but it's still there now. So whilst periods are a kind of normal bodily function and a universal fact of life wherever you live in the world, um, sadly, the shame and stigma still comes comes with them. So there's a sense that periods are kind of dirty or disgusting or make women weak. They're shameful. They need to be kept a secret. So we've kind of been indoctrinated to think that a perfectly natural bodily function is kind of abnormal in some way. And because this is predominantly affecting girls and and women, it's a gender equality issue, really. So we know that one in five girls have experienced teasing and bullying because of their period. And that one in five admitted that they didn't actually know what was happening when they started their period, which shows how much this stigma is still pervasive in 2020 because it's not being talked about enough for girls to understand what's happening when they started their period. And it's an issue globally as well. So 48% of girls in Iran believed in a survey that menstruation was a disease and then there's extreme examples of kind of this period stigma that are still practiced in 2020 so an example of that would be a practice called shaopadi in nepal in which girls and women on their period are considered impure and unclean and they're banished from the household and made to live for the duration of their period in makeshift huts outdoors which exposes them to lots of health and safety risks so unfortunately even though we think maybe there's lots more progressive thought around lots of different health issues in 2020 this is still a key issue and it's called a lot the final taboo and it's definitely still there the thing is better menstrual education and awareness is just better for society so what progress do you think emma is being made in terms of access to education around periods 
Yes, we've definitely seen a lot of progress on this issue. So there's been a kind of growing and active periods activism movement in the UK and around the world. And from that, we saw calls that Plan International UK and others supported to the government to call for the relationships and sex education curriculum to be amended, which we have seen happen. And so there is now kind of discussion around what a healthy period is on the curriculum. And it will be interesting to see how that new curriculum is rolled out, especially in the post-lockdown COVID situation that we're in now, seeing how education is prioritised in different ways. But as you mentioned, it's really important that everyone uh, learns about periods. I think the idea that it's something that just girls should learn about really reinforces a lot of the stigma and the secrecy and being it kept something just for girls and so it's important that in all areas of life and in with all people we're having education on this topic so it's not just kind of traditional school things I think this program has been a kind of really good example of education and information sharing about this issue that can go out to everyone in society and everyone in society has a role to to play in breaking this stigma down. Caroline, I want to bring you back in here because, of course, not all women have periods and equally not everyone who has a period is a woman. So how well do health professionals understand the experiences of menstruation for people who don't necessarily identify as women? The primary duty of a doctor is to the number one care and safety of their patient. And that should be separate to their beliefs. And just bear in mind that Our patients come from very diverse backgrounds and beliefs. So I would like to see doctors just taking an open view, taking the lead from the patient and then dealing with those issues as the patient sees them. And Emma, does this relate to the issues around access and stigma that we were talking about earlier? Yes, definitely. So I think we need everyone in society to be part of that process of breaking down the stigma and we need to be really inclusive in the language we use and recognise. As you've said, there are trans men and non-binary people that are experiencing periods as well as lots of women who, for example, for health reasons or being pregnant or postmenopausal or being trans women um, are not experiencing periods. And sometimes this is where the stigma can be the deepest. So we definitely need to be inclusive in the language that we use and recognise that this is a complex issue uh, and that no two period experiences are the same. So we've mentioned education, we've mentioned stigma, and cost is still a major factor in this problem. Are we going to see the end of the tampon tax, do you think? Yep, so the government has committed to ending the tampon tax. So that's a tax that sees period products as a luxury item. So there's a 5% tax on them. And so the government in the spring budget committed to the end of that, which is a big step forward in gender equality. And we should see that being removed from January 2021. But it's important to recognise that 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 won't go that far in tackling period poverty. It saves about £40 per woman over her lifetime. Um, And so we need to see, see more action towards ending period poverty, even though that is a forward step. Caroline, we started the topic of periods by talking to you about some of the basic biology. And now I want to come to you for the close. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Hannah brought up a very good point about periods and the hormonal changes during the month. 90% of women would get some sort of changes in the run up to a period. So we all recognise a bit of breast tenderness, a bit of bloating. PMS and PMDD are just much worse and often with severe depression as one of the symptoms. So if I had one key message from today, it would be your periods should be entirely manageable. And if you are running your life around your periods, 
then your periods aren't normal. Caroline, thank you very much. And thank you to you listening for journeying with us through the basic biology of periods. We've heard some of the physical health problems that can be associated with them. We've heard about some of the mental well-being implications and, of course, period poverty. And just before we finish the show, Eva Higginbotham has been buzzing around this question from Charlie. Humans have adrenaline for our fight or flight situation. Do bugs have this too? Thanks to the cooler weather here in the UK, the mosquitoes and flies that like to take up residence in my house each year have finally moved on. But I know one scientist who won't be celebrating that fact, insect expert Eleanor Drinkwater, who answered Charlie's question for us. It's actually been suggested that this fight-or-flight stress response may have evolved really, really early in animal evolution. In fact, it could have evolved earlier than the split between animals which have a backbone or vertebrates and invertebrates, which means that we might expect to see certain similarities in stress responses. So invertebrates, a signal from the brain in very simple terms, leads to a release of adrenaline, which in turn leads to a range of physiological changes preparing the animal for fight or flight. Heart racing, rapid breathing, sweaty palms, all a normal response to stress in humans and caused by adrenaline. But what happens in invertebrates? Well, first of all, we don't see adrenaline, but we do see other hormones which appear to perform a similar function. So in invertebrates, one of the key hormones for this is a hormone called octopamine. This hormone is released in the invertebrate brain as well as into the hemolymph, essentially an invertebrate equivalent of the bloodstream. So from the hemolymph, the octopamine is found to affect a wide range of tissues, including the heart, the airbags, the sensory organs. And on top of this, it also causes a release of stored hormones, which lead to fat reserves being mobilised, allowing the invertebrates to prepare for rapid activity. So there are remarkable similarities in how humans and invertebrates prepare their bodies for this fight-or-flight response. But some invertebrates do have a variety of creative defensive responses. One of my favourites, for example, is the pusmoth caterpillar. Now, when they are alarmed, they will rear up, lash with these amazing whips which come out of their tails, as well as even spraying formic acid, which is just really remarkable and something that you just wouldn't see in vertebrate systems. So even though you get certain similarities in the kind of physiological preparation for fight or flight between vertebrates and invertebrates, invertebrates still have a lot of really fascinating and specific tricks up their sleeve. Thanks, Eleanor. Next week, we'll be pondering over this question from Joe. My question is about drinking water. We drink gallons of the stuff in a lifetime, but which is better for us? Hard or soft? And if you think you know the answer, why not send it in? You can visit nakedscientist.com slash question, email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on social media, or join in our debate on the forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is all we've got time for for this week. Thank you to our guests, Caroline Overton, Hannah Short and Emma Jackson, and also to Sevilla for sharing her experience. And thank you to Katie Haler and Eva Higginbotham, who put the programme together, Next week, it's Q&A time. We are covering the latest science news with special guests and answering your science questions. So send them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. 
The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Katie Haler. Thanks very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>